You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, so Vivian, it's so lovely to have you here. So for those watching at Room Now, um, which is just so exciting about this whole ACR 2021, um, I have Dr. Vivian Bykirk with me, who is a fellow Canadian, but has spent a lot of time now in New York. And I'd like to ask you, Vivian, with you know, what's going on with the big um, incident cohort of rheumatoid arthritis patients, ERA and CATCH? Tell me about that and where you think, it, where we're at and lessons learned and maybe where we're going. It's a big topic, Janet. I'll try and be as succinct as I can. So for anyone that doesn't know, we started recruiting and following patients with new onset RA even early RA, as in not, didn't even meet criteria yet since 2007. And we have recruited over 3,500 patients and followed many of them out to three, if not five years, and some out to 10. Um, and just as a aside, along the way, we took out questionnaires, we added questionnaires so we could answer different questions. But really, we were very interested in how to improve the quality of life of patients. So we had to understand the predictors of remission. We had to understand how to implement changes to improve rates of remission, which indeed we did. Uh, and now we're looking at more of the uh, effects of other, we'll call them covariates. So uh, things like comorbidity, multimorbidity, we've seen that about 30% have metabolic syndrome. We've seen shockingly in Canada when we did this study that roughly 30% met criteria for obesity by BMI and another 30% overweight. And they were both of those groups had 25% and 50% less remission at two years. So that had never been shown in early disease. And then there was an interaction effect with smoking, which by the way, has gone way down. We started out and there were 25% smokers now roughly 10%. And that's still a little higher than many are reporting. Um, the uh, uh, we've been looking at infections. We've been looking at the risk for COVID uh, or severe COVID, which we found to be very high. I think that you might've been on that one. <laughs> and, uh, um, and then recently we're thinking about how to follow people virtually in a better way because people can't come into visits and they've sort of gotten used to not coming into visits. And also we can't keep asking them to come often for a long time. So, um, so we're looking at how to make the physical exam uh, that we see ideally on a screen, but maybe by phone, uh, jive our MD global with the patient's report of swollen or pain, painful and swollen joints. Uh, and so that we can make a patient C dive. Uh, so patient clinical disease activity index modeled after the MD uh, clinical disease activity index. And we're showing that uh, it, patients, so first of all, it's responsive. If you flare, in other words, your CDI was low remission before, and you go to moderate high, the patient CDI flares too. Uh, and so it's pretty, uh, it, it's, uh, they, they agree quite highly. So I think that's promising. We have other measures 
uh, that we use as well, the RA flare questionnaire, which actually works reasonably well as a disease activity questionnaire, and of course the rapid three. Uh, so, you know, we can rely on patient report in our virtual visits and we need to get to do that better. And we don't even train patients how to examine joints and it's already this good. Right. So, and I, I think you were poised for COVID before it even happened by looking at the patient uh, derived CDI and, the, and the, the proper calculation of a CDI and how they really were quite closely linked, especially at the extremes. If you're really flaring and they say they are, it's, it seems to be true really and vice versa. If they're in remission, it seems to be quite concordant. So I think that that's really helpful. So it really sounds like uh, CATCH is looking at patients asking clinically relevant questions and then coming back to do epi kind of research on them. But in your other life, not only leading this incident cohort in Canada, your other life, you have things to do with the accelerated medicines program or AMP. And can you tell me a little bit about what's going on with the AMP um, area? Well, I'm going to just interchange there. So we've started a catch us consortium of early arthritis cohorts in the United States. Uh, five sites onboarding, uh, and two um, Hopkins and us have been doing it for a while now, getting the bugs out, mimicking a lot of the study as we did the prospective cohort for AMP, and which will hopefully be even better in AMP phase three, or where they're calling it AMP AIM. Uh, but in uh, we had three phases in AMP. The get it all started, teach people how to do synovial biopsies, a lot of rooms doing it, uh, and uh, put together a study, and then develop all the SOPs and test all the pipeline analytic methods, which just completely changed every six months because almost like they cubed in terms of the amount of sequencing that could be done at once. So in this latest, and you'll people who have um, been watching and listening, they will hear the data from this latest round of analytics, which has roughly 72 patients in it. Uh, All of them had to have enough cells in their biopsies to go into the analytic pipeline. Measured uh, for each um, cell line, so these are single cells, RNA-seq and protein measuring site-seq studies. So from macrophages, monocytes, fibroblasts, T-cells, B-cells, and uh, endothelial cells. And uh, each of them have been characterized. So two things have happened. One, we've seen cells we never knew existed. We've seen states that change in different, um, probably maybe due to medication exposure or time we don't know yet. And we've also been able to cluster or find six different clusters of what are called um, cell type abundance um, proportions or CTAPs. And uh, each of those are quite different. You might get myeloid myeloid line, thank you. And fibroblasts in one, you might get very TB cell enriched in another, but it will be CT, there'll be CD4, and then you'll see another one where it's CD8 with a lot of granzyme. Uh, so we're, we're sorting through all of these, what seem to be discrete, um, reconstructed RA groups that 
somewhat associate with clinical findings, but not entirely. So all of that still needs to be understood. I think there's still a chasm between clinical findings and what is seen on histopathology and in the joint. And uh, I think, I think, my personal opinion is that we need to better characterize the patients because we know that 35% of them will complain of a non-articular pain syndrome because we give body pain diagrams to everybody. And most of those are regional, probably tendinopathies or whatever. Uh, and about nine, six to 9% are quite widespread centralized pain. And we can't correlate synovial findings with that phenotype. So we need to do better. Right. So it really sounds like to, to wrap it up that we're getting closer to personalized medicine and some of these different uh, groups of cell types at single cell level and sequencing that maybe eventually we'll find a drug that would be more appropriate or a better durability of a medication. Better or a also, but maybe combinations, you know, right? one, that, right. that, one that targets each of even, even uh, complement, we haven't even studied that yet, but one that ones that target, but don't worsen safety in combination. I think that's where we're going. Uh, and then of course, managing the non-direct synovial itis uh, that is experienced in other parts of the body, which there's a lot of injury, as you know, you know, it's the first side effect of going on a TNF inhibitor back pain, you lift something up because you think you're still strong and you get back pain. So these are the challenges. Right. Well, I think, you know, your name is like every ACR, your name is all over the place in a great way. So um, I thank you very much for sharing your insights. And uh, this will broadcast on Room Now, and we'll have everybody that's listening to, to follow some of what you're doing with the cohorts um, throughout yeah. the next several years and maybe and decades. I, I can't to wait to. I can't wait to implement what our colleagues are doing. There's all kinds of new autoantibodies to look at. Yes, a lot yeah. of, it's very exciting. A lot of interest in lupus and anti-interferon antibodies. I don't know if that happens in, in rheumatoid. So I think we have a lot to do. I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. You're aimed and we're both catching up. So thank you <laughs> very, very much. <laughs> Thanks, Janet. Hi, Vivian. So I'm with Vivian Bykirk. This is At Room Now. I'm Janet Pope, a room reporter. Um, so Vivian, uh, it's lovely to talk to you again. And I'd really like to sort of pick your brain on if you were starting now, what would you want to know? So in other words, what advice would you give for young rheumatologists, maybe those who are going to be superb clinicians or academicians, uh, perhaps doing research? And just some background on you, you um, did rheumatology and you were you did your epidemiology degree, of course, as well as rheumatology. And then you were doing clinical medicine and then transitioned over to at that point in time, University of Toronto, and then the rest is history, Boston, and now in New York, leading early arthritis cohort, helping um, to lead a U.S. Uh, early arthritis cohort, and many other things, Flare, Omerac, um, AMP, etc. So what, what maybe top three things would you think about if someone's thinking about an academic life? I think, I mean, you sort of hinted on the first part, get as much education as you can and get a sense of, you know, what is going to be meaningful in the line of research moving forward. So 
in my time, in our time, uh, there is a big emphasis on clinical research. So it was how to do clinical research and every, you know, all the um, aspects of measurement of, of uh, phenotyping, of, of uh, trying to do adjusted models for observational research, clinical trials. In fact, I did a clinical trial withdrawing hydroxychloroquine, a multi-center Canadian study um, during my- New resume. England Journal. Yes, and, and so that was my trial. first intro to uh, uh, it, trying to do a clinical trial in less than two years because I was a fellow and John Esdale was my senior and mentor. Uh, and uh, and it's, that's not easy. It's a little easier if you are working with uh, uh, many others on a trial and it's being run by professionals. Um, in other words, it's easier to walk beside a heavy wagon. Uh, the... Um, I had, you know, life circumstances change in people and um, a family member was dying. I had to move home and therefore home was not academic. So we went with community, a uh, community practice. I worked my butt off. It's, it was, I've never learned so much, uh, you know, and then the political environment changed and it was not meant to be for me. And as predicted, my one of my mentors, Peter Tebbel said, you'll be bored at seven years, you'll wanna to go to academics. And that's indeed what happened and I did. Uh, and, uh, and so that's when I got into early RA research because uh, I felt we were doing things way too late. And all my European colleagues, I was following their research and, and it was very clear that was the next direction. Um, I moved to the United States again, family reasons, and uh, and had a wonderful experience at the Brigham, and then um, in the past ten years, a wonderful experience at Hospital for Special Surgery, uh, and have had many many opportunities to lead projects, to start new projects, to and even to move from the very clinical and observational research that I was trained to do to the translational research that I probably wanted to do all along because my original degree was in biochemistry. So it's been a, a really great journey. So what can I say as, you know, as pearls, so to speak? I'm female, I had children, I made sure I spent time with my children. You never get that back. Uh, and that maybe slowed my track down a little, but in the end, you know, so what? It's worth it, uh, it's worth it. It's worth it. Uh, the, uh, but, and what I love now is men are taking paternity leave. It's becoming normal. So men do it too. It's worth it. Uh, the, uh, my son-in-law is doing it right now. Uh, and then I would say that, you know, you do have a life, so you have to go with your life. And then thirdly, pick good mentors and good sponsors. And, uh, and that's how you can navigate the system moving forward. Um, and by that, I mean, sponsors are people who they know what you want to do, and they will help it make it happen. Uh, mentors are people who are going to, you know, really foster your skill set or foster your actual ability to carry out your research, write it up, whatever. There are many aspects of mentorship, um, even how to develop your career, even how to write your resume, how to put in your pr promotion documents. It's all 
it's all a new step. You know, I, we used to say in medical school, I wish I could do this all over so I could do it right. Uh, and in a way, I sort of feel like that now, but at least maybe many will get that chance to take those few pearls. Oh, and I love the pearls. And I think that you're also implying that you have to work at yourself. You can't just, you said, choose mentors, get a sponsor. Um, no. You need to seek out actively. And I think that um, many people start their career and think that they're like overstepping. And I think not being aggressive, but being knowing what you want and trying to get there um, in a positive way, bringing people with you and they bring you along as well. So not dragging anyone down and not putting anyone down, but just saying, look at we're in it together. And as a team, here's where I need to get. And then serendipity, I think along the way, be, be open to yeah. be open to change. You pivoted I many find, times. I find yeah. that now the whole concept of mentorship is becoming a formalized process in many, many institutions and, and take advantage of it from the beginning. Um, and you, it won't be just one mentor. We used to have one mentor. Now we have eight, nine, ten. Right mentors. for different and skills, different yeah. times, different yeah. skills. You know, it, it's uh, and people. I'm at the mentorship phase now, and I love doing it. So don't think people don't want to do it. That's right. Well, listen, Vivian. It's always. Just wonderful talking to you and thank you for giving up your time tonight uh, to really, I think, help the people listening where they can really get to the next level of where they want to be, the trainees, the young staff, et cetera. It's never too late to do what you want to do. Right. Well, I agree with that. You know, I, I changed career. I did a shift at 40. That might be too classical, but that's when I did it. And I did a shift again at early 50s. So it, you could do it anytime. And Absolutely. oh, work out, stay healthy. Yes, <laughs> yeah. We'll have a life outside of, outside of medicine. That's always a good thing. It helps you think straighter when you're in medicine. Well, thank you so much. And uh, people, I'm, I'm Janet Pope. So I'm at Janet Burdope if you want to follow me on Twitter. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thank you, Janet. Bye-bye. This is Dr. Moral Al-Ramahi reporting to you on virtual ECR Convergence 2021. Do you use RAPID-3 in psoriatic arthritis? Well, abstract 0633 shows a strong agreement between RAPID-3 remission scores with DAPSA and C-DAPSA when redefining the RAPID-3 score categories. So they redefine the categories so that less than or equal to three represents remission, a rapid three score between three to 11 represents low disease activity and a rapid three score between 12 to 15 represents moderate disease activity, whereas a rapid three score above 16 represents high disease activity. Rapid three is a very simple uh, tool to use as a disease activity me measure, as we know in rheumatoid arthritis, but it would be very simple to use in psoriatic arthritis in that it's, can be completely, uh, it can be completed entirely by the patient. So is this practice changing? I think so. We need more studies to validate this, but yes, potentially so. And I know I would be using it a lot more for the purpose of monitoring psoriatic arthritis disease activity. This is Dr. Moral Ramahe reporting to you on ACR Convergence 2021. Be sure to check out roomnow.com for more captivating coverage on ACR Convergence. This is Dr. Moral Ramahe reporting to you live from ACR Convergence 2021, the virtual version. 
I wanted to talk to you today about abstract 0572, which I found very intriguing. This was a prospective multi-center cohort of US veterans with rheumatoid arthritis that were followed for 17 years for development of an incident major adverse cardiovascular event or MACE. This study showed that several cytokines and chemokines were associated with an increased risk of an incident MACE independent of traditional cardiovascular disease risk factors and independent of clinical RA disease activity. In addition to that, they showed that several cytokines and chemokines predicted MACE even if a patient had low disease activity or was in remission. This study just made me go, wow, I thought this was huge. And I also think that we need to do better at, at cardiovascular disease risk stratification in our patients. And this study helps us realize that we have tools to come to that are on the horizon that we can use to help predict cardiovascular risk. This is Dr. Moral Al-Ramahi reporting to you on ACR Convergence 2021. Be sure to check out roomnow.com for more coverage. Hi, this is Dr. Moral Al-Ramahi with RoomNow reporting to you on the virtual ACR 2021. Are you aware of COPA syndrome? I actually wasn't. And there was a nice abstract from today, abstract 0529, that talked about COPA syndrome. Specifically, the authors had recently established that a 77-year-old female who was 14 years out from a double lung transplantation for a diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis onset of age 60 years, and then her son with RI-related ILD and her granddaughter with juvenile arthritis complicated by ILD all have COPA syndrome. So this prompted the author's desire to determine the prevalence of COPA syndrome-associated mutations in patients with ILD who received lung transplantation. So before we get started on what they found, let's just talk about what COPA syndrome is. Well, it's a rare cause of immune-mediated lung disease. It mimics RA-related ILD, lupus, and vasculitis. And there are adult-onset cases reported. So what did they find? Well, they determined that mutations in the COPA gene underlie some cases of severe pulmonary fibrosis. This was a great abstract that details a rare syndrome that is underdiagnosed, underrecognized. And I thought it uh, was a good one to reference for that reason. Thanks for tuning in to Room Now. Please check out roomnow.com for more coverage. This is Dr. Morala Ramahi. Thank you. Hi, David. Welcome to the TNF uh, panel. It's you and I uh, this evening to talk. Um, can you tell us who you are and your Twitter handle? Yes, David Liu from Melbourne, Australia. And you can get me at Dr. David Liu, DR David Liu. Uh, yeah, good to be back uh, and chatting TNF inhibitors with you, Janet. Yeah, well, uh, it's been an interesting day, although there was an awful lot of diseases discussed, which is the beauty of the ACR. We can learn so much. But have you got a TNF highlight for today? Yeah, and I know we'll get on to oral surveillance eventually, but I um, I think an uh, abstract which was a little bit uh, neglected, but I think was uh, important, uh, was uh, data from Corevitas, uh, what used to be known as a corona registry. And so looking at real-world U.S., um, uh, data, in this case, in rheumatoid arthritis patients. And it looked um, at TNF inhibitors versus IL-6 inhibitors, and particularly um, at monotherapy. It did look at combo as well, but I'm interested in the monotherapy bit because we've seen um, randomized controlled trials, uh, Adapta looking at tocilizumab versus TNF inhibitors. And we've seen Monarch looking at cerilumab and TNF inhibitors. 
uh, both have shown that uh, there's an advantage uh, if you're not on methotrexate to go with the IL-6 inhibitor versus a TNF inhibitor. And I think that's a, always been a bit of a key um, point for IL-6 inhibitors. But does that actually wash out in real, in real world practice? Because real world practice, as we know, is um, often quite different to our, how things look in trials. And so in fact, if you look at this Corevitas data, um, things were basically the same between TNF inhibitor monotherapy and IL-6 mono, uh, um, inhibitor monotherapy. Nothing to pick between the two of them. Um, for memory, low disease activity was that um, an adjusted odds ratio of 0.99. So really, you know, there's, I think, perhaps sometimes there's a little bit too much made of the differences between our drugs. We fundamentally got a lot of good drugs. And um, and I don't think that even if you can't take methotrexate, that you should, you, you should uh, veer away from a TNF inhibitor. Well, I think that that's really interesting because it does go against, as you say, against the clinical wisdom. Um, I thought what was interesting were um, really this is an indirect kudos to um, TNF inhibitors and how they perform with respect to COVID. So there were actually two abstracts. So one was earlier on abstract 87, um, really from the some global registries looking at inflammatory arthritis, but also Crohn's, psoriasis, et cetera, but mostly IA made up the data. And then one that uh, Professor Choi presented today on behalf of uh, his group looking at the NHS in Wales, and that was abstract 990. And both of them, although the, the purpose of them wasn't exactly, they wanted to look at COVID outcomes and how patients did and how shielding sort of made less COVID infection occur in our IA patients in Wales. But both those two abstracts actually showed that if anything, patients on a TNF inhibitor not only did as well as their peers, in general, they did better. And maybe there's something to it. So it's just something to keep in mind that we are worried about drugs like rituximab, but the TNFs seem to fare well. These are non-randomized, but they're consistent study among study. So I think that's a highlight for TNF inhibitors and a, a good safety message for our patients. So if we shift gears and talk a little bit about oral surveillance, I'd like to kind of think your take on what we've learned, not about uh, a Jack or tofacitinib in particular and the higher dose in particular. I think I'd like to ask you more, what would our take home of a study like this be on um, these serious adverse events, MACE, malignancy, VTE, serious infection? What is your take home on a TNF inhibitor? The patients were on mostly um, a Tanercept and rest of the world, but in North America, um, Adalimumab. So we, we, we really had two comparisons, although they were put together. But what would you be able to tell your patient uh, who's on a TNF inhibitor when they're asking about safety from these data that we just heard about today? Hey, Janet, it's really interesting. I think that... Uh... I've never heard more about the cardioprotective effects of TNF inhibitors than I have in the last couple of days. Um, and I think that's obviously um, absolutely reasonable. And these are, these are, these um, aren't assertions, they're truths, but um, I think in a world where we're um, actually uh, often worried about the underlying cardiovascular effect of rheumatoid arthritis, to, um, TNF inhibitors make a compelling prospect in, in the long term, in terms of long-term therapy and dealing with that. I think if, you know, we can't say on one hand, we know that um, rheumatoid arthritis affects the heart. Uh, we know that it's uh, a cardiovascular risk. We know that, you know, we should be considered like a cardiovascular risk factor like diabetes. Um, we can't say all of that on one hand. 
And then on the other hand, say, well, we don't really care about cardiovascular risk and rheumatoid arthritis. Choose whatever drug you want. Um, I think so. I think that's kind of from that point of view. Um, and, and you know, far be it for me to say that TNF inhibitors don't have um, you know their own safety issues of their own. But as far as cardiovascular risk is concerned, and I think once you start to add on the actual extra cardiovascular risk of patient, where which the most most of our patients have, then um, yeah, I think this has been really um, exciting data for TNF inhibitors. Um, I just want to remind everyone as well that. Uh, if you look at it, it's not like there's an efficacy difference between these two drugs that, you know, you, between the two arms, you look at the um, efficacy data um, from um, oral surveillance and um, it's exactly the same across, across the course of time. So, I mean, that's been my take on it, Jenna. I, I mean, I'd be interested to hear what you think about what this means for TNF inhibitors. Right. So, I mean, I, there's probably three possibilities. So one's cardio protective and the other isn't or one's cardioprotective and the other is even cardio-negative, or they're both cardioprotective, but one's more so, or they're both cardio-negative, but one's more so. So it's really tough to tell. And when cardiologists, um, having discussed the data in our journal club and things like that, even though, of course, the paper's not out yet on oral surveillance, but lots of press release data has been out. um, Some of the cardiologists say, well, you know what? The rate of cardiovascular events was very low in both groups. They said, if this is a high risk cardiovascular group, which obviously it was event driven and it's randomized. So it's equal in the three groups. I would think your confounding variables that are known and unknown, but they said, you know, the rate's pretty low. So you're probably doing an okay job, even though you should try to get smoking cessation on trying to actually control their blood pressure, their cholesterol, and that a drug, the incremental benefit or causation, as you might interpret it one way or the other, depending on the drug class is probably far less important than, you know, controlling the major risk factors. So I think you're right to say that we can rest assured for our patients other than there is this warning about, you know, severe congestive heart failure, TNF inhibitors shouldn't be used. But I think I do have patients in my practice where I, I, do, I forget that their ventricular function, LV function is so decreased because they're on four drugs that keep them out of heart failure. They're on an ACE, maybe they're on a spironolactone, et cetera, et cetera, a low dose beta blocker. So I think overall though, it's good news for those on a TNF inhibitor. I can't tell you to contextualize whether it's indifferent versus bad news for those on a jack. Right now, it seems like it's bad news, but I think we'll contextualize it over time and look at the rates, looking at the Intract trial that was tocilizumab versus etanercept uh, with or without methotrexate. This was all with methotrexate. The hazard ratios uh, were almost similar. They were almost the same uh, of tocilizumab compared to a TNF. So again, numerically higher on tocilizumab, but met that non-inferiority. But the actual event rate was far, it was still low, but it was higher on Intract. But 10 years ago, maybe we didn't have as many comeds like lipid lowering drugs and things like that. So I think we'll probably see a lot of um, reviews, a lot of um, editorials, letters to the editor that will help contextualize. But I agree, this has been a good day for TNFs on the things that we've discussed. <laughs> well, you know, I think, you know, our old drugs allowed good days as well, right? That's right.
Absolutely. But it's good. You know, it's as you said the other day, it's our old friend. We know it well and uh, we continue to use them. And I think we can improve durability and look at risk factors. We're already, you know, having very little TB because we screen for it. Serious infection, we, we sort of know what to do if a patient's looking like they're sick or we avoid it in the worst case scenarios of uh, multiple serious infections of a lot of our advanced therapies. So I think um, we're, we're learning a lot on how to treat our patients and their comorbidities and multimorbidities effectively. And TNFs are helping us learn some of that. Oh, I mean, I think it'll be interesting as well, because we will have some real world data as well to look at. And maybe people do behave a little bit better when they know they're in a clinical trial. Um, and maybe that is important when it comes down to cardiovascular risk. Maybe that's why the, the event rates are low. Um, we've had enough experience with tofacitinib and with uh, all the JAK inhibitors to, well, we have enough globally to be able to start to look at these data and to start to um, try and draw some conclusions. Uh, so I'm sure this um, this hasn't kind of run its course. And it's um, interesting that I think when it comes to oral surveillance and the malignancy co um, component, um, you know, looking at what the real world data show versus what the uh, trial shows may, may well be a little bit different. So let's see, I mean, I think let's see the similar kind of things uh, wash out with, um, with cardiovascular risk. We will wait and see. So always a pleasure talking to you and everyone, please continue to follow us at Room Now. Thank you.